Book Three, Chapter Ten of Saint Francis of Assisi: A Biography by Johannes Jornson, translated by Thomas O'Connor Sloan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Book Three, God's Singer, Chapter Ten: The Learned Franciscans and the Third Order. The development Francis had opposed went its inflexible and unchangeable way. More and more did the Friars Minor become a learned order of students like the Dominicans. After the Pentecost chapter of 1219, Brother Pacificus and his companions went back to France, provided with the papal letters of introduction of June 11th of the same year. This time their intention was to stay in Paris, whither they seem not to have gone in 1217, on their first mission journey. The French clerics seem not to have been satisfied with the letters brought by the brothers, and inquired about them in Rome. The result of this inquiry was a new papal commendation, addressed directly to the French prelates, and dated May 29, 1220. This authorized the brothers to settle in a house in Saint-Denis outside of Paris. They had there not even a chapel, but attended divine service in the adjacent parish church. Already in 1234, they had obtained their own large convent in Saint-Germain-des-Prés, and here a seminary was erected to accommodate 214 students. The number of applicants soon became so great that often for long periods many had to remain enrolled upon the waiting lists until the departure of students who had taken their examination gave room for others. Franciscans of the old type saw only with doubt and reluctance this new departure, especially was Brother Giles tireless in opposing it. Time after time he used his sharp wit against the learned brothers who seemed to him false children of St. Francis. There is a great difference, said he, between a sheep which bleats and one which grazes. For braying does no one any good, but grazing does itself good. It is so with a friar minor who preaches and one who prays and works. A thousand, and again a thousand times better, is it to teach oneself than to teach the whole world. Another time he broke out thus, Who is the richer, he who has only a little garden and cultivates it, or he to whom the whole world was given, and who does nothing with it? So much wisdom does not help to salvation, but he who really wishes to know much must work much, and bow his head low. A brother came to Giles and wished to have his blessing for preaching in the marketplace in Perugia. Yes, answered Giles, provided thou wilt limit thy preaching to saying, A great cry and little wool is what I give. Once Giles went into the garden in front of the hermitage of Monte Ripido near Perugia, where he lived for thirty years after the death of Francis. He heard some laborers in a vineyard getting scolded by their master because they talked instead of working. Fite, fite, non parlate. Work, work, and don't talk, the master of the vineyard said to them. This was just the word for Giles. He left his cell and sought the other brothers. 
Hear this now, what the man says. Work, work, and don't talk. Another time Giles heard a turtle dove cooing in the garden. Oh, sister dove, said he, I will learn from you how to serve the Lord. For thou sayest always, qua, qua, not la, la, here, here, on earth, and not there, there, in heaven, are we to serve God. O sister dove, how beautifully thou cooest! O children of men, why do you not learn from our sister dove? In such moments it seemed to Brother Giles as if the old times were back again, when he and Francis, as God's musicians, wandered through Italy. Inspired by the thought, he sang his songs in honor of his queen poverty and her sister, the noble lady, Chastity, while he kept moving up and down among his flower beds and played as if on a violin with two sticks, one of which he scraped across the other. But soon Brother Giles awakened from his memories and dreams and saw that the good old times were irrevocably gone, that Francis was dead, and he himself, an old man whose ideas did not interest anyone. It was as if the sun was extinguished for him, and the flowers in his little garden smelt sweetly no longer, and the turtle doves ceased their cooing. Then Brother Giles sighed deeply and long. Our ship leaks and must sink. Let him flee who can. Paris, Paris, thou ruinest St. Francis's order. This sigh found its echo from now on among the best of the sons of St. Francis. Paris, thou hast ruined the Sisi, was the song of Jacopone de Todi. And when Giles in his old age was placed before the general of the order, St. Bonaventure, the first question he asked this learned man was the following. Father, can we ignorant and unlearned men be saved? Certainly, answered St. Bonaventure kindly. Can one who is not book-learned love God as much as one who is? asked the old Franciscan again. An old woman is in a condition to love God more than a master in theology, was Bonaventure's answer. Then Giles stood up, went to the wall of his garden, and called out to the wide world, Hear this, all of you, an old woman who never has learned anything and cannot read can love God more than Brother Bonaventure. This true disciple of St. Francis of Assisi died soon after Giles joined his master and those friends who had gone before him on April 22, 1262, the eve of the Feast of St. George, the same evening on which he, over fifty years before, had sat by the fire in his father's house in Assisi, and had heard him tell about Francis, and had made up his mind to seek him. Through a long life he had kept his heart faithful to the first and only love of his younger days. The development of the order in the direction of study had taken a greater impulse after the Franciscans went to England, September 10, 1224. This mission went out from France and was led by Agnello of Pisa, who had been custos in Paris. The brothers settled first in Canterbury, 
but as early as november first twelve twenty four had established themselves in oxford here they received a large accession of students and candidates from the celebrated university and study was nowhere more eagerly pursued than among the english brothers eccleston tells how they on their bare feet went long distances in frost and cold or in unfathomable mud to go to the lectures at the same time they adhered most strictly to the franciscan vows of poverty they also had the franciscan joy with them in their house as soon as they saw each other they must laugh and even in the church this ecstatic joy would seize them so that for sheer happiness they could not say their choral prayers the franciscanism of the english brothers was thus in some ways very genuine and elias of cortona when general had no more fixed opponents of his violations of the rule than the learned friar minor adam of marsh none the less it was an englishman iman of faversham who as general of the order from twelve forty to twelve forty four ordained that none except the book learned should be officers in the order brother giles and brother juniper's type was on the point of dying out and how could it be otherwise at the pentecost chapter of twelve twenty one there were present three thousand of the brethren but could francis expect that all these like the first twelve disciples were to be knights of the round table jordanus of Giano tells very honorably of himself that he instead of being an adventurous warrior of god's army energetically set himself in opposition when it was proposed to send him as a missionary to germany brothers like this were no longer heaven's soaring larks francis saw justly in them chickens who sought shelter under protecting wings the same tendency became manifest in the third order at last the order founded by francis for married men and women if we believe thomas of chelano it came to pass that saint francis after having preached to the birds at bavagna came to a town called alviano between orte and orvieto near todi here he and brother maceo stopped in the market-place and were going to preach but it was now evening and the many swallows who still build their nests in the old gray walls and ruinous towers of alviano circled to and fro with ceaseless twittering and glad little cries in and out of their nests under the eaves francis and maceo as was their custom sang their laud timete et honorate and the people collected and stood expectantly in silence while the singing lasted but those who did not keep silence were the swallows lower and lower they swept across the market-place in ever thicker flocks and their twittering and cries increased until at last no sound could be heard then francis looked up with his patient countenance and said very cheerfully my sister swallows it seems to me now that the time has come when i should have a chance to speak now you have said enough hear therefore god's word and keep still and quiet while i preach and at once all the swallows were silent and made no sound 
as long as Francis preached. But on account of this miracle, and on account of the glowing words Francis spoke, all the inhabitants of the town wanted to follow Francis and be his disciples. But Francis restrained them and said, Be not too hasty. I will ordain for you what you shall do to be saved. And from that time on, the Actus Beati Francisci goes on to say, he thought of establishing a third order, Quidicitur Continentium, which is called the Abstainers. More than once such things happened to Francis. As an instance, there was a parish priest who, after he had heard Francis, wished to live the same life as he did, without, however, abandoning his field of work. Francis conceded to him to remain in his church and only ordered him each year, when he had collected his tithes, to give the poor what might be left of the tithes of the preceding year. It was a Franciscan renunciation of possessions, modified to suit the circumstances of the case. On one of his wanderings, Francis met in the town of Poggio Bonsi, in the valley of Elsa, between Florence and Siena, a merchant named Lucasio, whom, it seemed to him, he had known in early youth. Like the Sienese John Columbini, who figured later, Lucasio had hitherto been a hard and penurious man, with one exception in his sparing ways. He was generous with the poor, gave lodging to pilgrims, received and helped widows and orphans. Francis seems to have had no influence in his conversion, but only to have given him and his wife, Bonadonna, a rule of life and a penitential garment. After this, Lucasio devoted all his time to works of charity, took care of the sick in the hospitals, and went out with an ass loaded with medicines into the fever-laden Marema to bring succor to the many fever patients there. If he was home, he worked in a little garden he had retained after parting with his other possessions, and whose fruits he sold. If this way of life did not bring him enough, he would go out and beg. Bonadonna seems for a while to have resisted vigorously these proceedings of her husband, but like John Columbini's wife, she is said to have become converted by a miracle. After this, they lived in unity together and died at an interval of a few hours, April 28, 1260. Around Lucasio as a center, a circle of people of similar inclination collected in Poggio Bonsi, and in the same way in other Italian cities there were formed what Gregory the Ninth was to designate as Penitentium Collegia, Communities of Penitents. It is to be believed that, as in the case above, Francis gave these penitents a rule of life. This was ever his custom with all who asked him for spiritual guidance. None of these rules are in existence, and it is only by the help of later sources that we can acquire an idea of their actual scope and contents. It was characteristic of the penitential brothers, the expression tertiary, that is, members of the third order of St. Francis, only appeared later, that they sought in their life in the world to imitate the ways of Francis and his brothers. 
They were to be in the world, but not of the world. As soon as they entered the brotherhood, they pledged themselves to give back all unjustly acquired goods, which in many cases meant to give up everything, to pay the tithes for which they might stand in arrears, to make their wills in time to prevent strife among their heirs, not to take an oath, except in special extraordinary cases, and not to accept public office. They wore a poor and distinctive habit, and divided their time between prayer and deeds of charity. They generally lived with their families, but sometimes, like the friar's minor, withdrew into solitude. These penitential brothers very soon came in conflict with the public authorities on account of their principles. Impressive in this aspect is an incident that occurred in the city of Faenza, near Rimini. Here the citizens had joined the local brotherhood in great numbers, and when the mayor wished them to take the usual oath of obedience, by which they would oblige themselves to take up arms when the authorities ordered it, they refused to swear, under the claim that to swear such an oath involving the taking up of arms was against their rule. By every means of compulsion the mayor tried to force the brotherhood to take this oath, and apparently they turned in their need to Francis's friend, Cardinal Ugolin. This is the only supposition by which we can explain the fact that Honorius III, in a document of December 16, 1221, ordered the Bishop of Rimini to take the penitential brothers in Faenza into his protection. This dispute between the penitential brothers and the authorities soon spread over the whole of Italy. As a sort of punishment, the city subjected the penitential brothers to special taxes, or forbade them to give their property to the poor. In a circular letter to the archbishops of all Italy, Honorius orders the clergy to take the side of the brothers against the public authorities, and to see that they are not injured in any way. And scarcely had Gregory the Ninth become Pope when he, time after time, threatened the enemies of the penitential brothers with the anger of God and of the holy apostles Peter and Paul. More fortunately situated than the Quakers and Adventists of a later time, the penitential brothers could bring about at least a partial disarming in the quarrelsome Italian republics, and in some degree paved the way for future days of greater peace. And thus it fell to Francis's lot, or to that of the movement instituted by him, to tame the wolves of the Middle Ages. As soon as the dissension in Faenza broke out, it very naturally occurred to Ugolin to unite the scattered brotherhoods into a united and therefore more powerful body. In the late summer of 1221, he still resided in Bologna and its environs, and therefore had much to do with the citizens of Faenza in various ways. Francis and Ugolin apparently at this time wrote in common the first rule for the penitential brotherhood or as they were already called by Bernard of Bessa, the Third Order. The Third Order, the secretary of St. Bonaventure writes, is equally for clerics and lay folk, maidens, widows, and married people. 
the intention of the brothers and sisters of penance is to live honorably in their residences and to busy themselves with pious actions and to flee from the vanities of the world and among them thou seest noble knights and others of the great ones of the world in humble costume acting so beautifully with the poor and rich that thou canst well see that they truly are god-fearing as has been said the original rule of the third order which francis and ugolin wrote has not been preserved for us but it certainly was the foundation of the rule of twelve twenty eight the merit of bringing which to light is sabatier's and which was valid in the ravenna district perhaps in faenza this rule had the following contents the first to the fifth chapter gives directions about clothing fasts prayers the sixth chapter paragraph one is devoted to the brothers confessions and communions which are fixed at three times in the year july easter pentecost paragraph two inculcates conscientious payment of tithes paragraph three contains the prohibition against bearing weapons paragraph four forbids oaths oaths of allegiance and oaths in court are accepted paragraph five is directed against cursing and swearing chapter seven treats of meetings of the order once a month mass is read there is preaching and a collection chapter eight on the sick they are to be visited once a week to be helped corporally as well as to be admonished spiritually chapter nine on praying for the deceased members and attending the burials chapter ten paragraph one on making one's will within three months of the day of reception paragraph two to observe peace among themselves paragraph three how to meet the attacks of the public authorities the heads of the brotherhood shall have recourse to the bishop paragraph five of this chapter treats of the requirements for being a brother or a sister that one shall make peace with his neighbor return ill-gotten goods and pay arrears of tithes chapter eleven paragraph one no heretic can be received paragraph two married women must not be received without their husband's consent chapters twelve and thirteen treat of the maintenance of discipline in the order especially are to be noted chapter thirteen paragraphs eight and nine in which it is ordered that the member who has given open scandal and injured the good name of the order shall acknowledge his offence before the assembled brethren and accept his punishment if the offence is very great the offender can be expelled from the order in paragraphs thirteen to fifteen it is forbidden to take a complaint against a brother or sister to the courts all disputes must be settled within the order paragraph twelve gives finally an addition to the command to return ill-gotten goods if it is not known any more who has been wronged or who his heirs are than by a public crier or by posting on the church pillars all and every one who has been injured by the newly entering brother shall be invited to make known his claim end of book three chapter ten